Turn over to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. A little mini-series here on no one like God, and we're in part three of that. I just want to read for us out of Romans chapter 11, and uh, beginning in verse 30. Uh, Romans chapter 11, not Hebrews. What am I doing here? Romans chapter 11. <laughs> I'm looking at it going, that doesn't look right. Um, Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord... Or who has made, who, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We've been looking here at some different aspects of our God. And uh, we saw the first week the perfect knowledge of God. And what that entailed. What that came into our understanding to mean and then also the profound wisdom of God not just the knowledge that he knows everything but he also understands how to use that knowledge to carry out his ways and his purposes and then the last time we were together we looked at the unsearchable judgments of God and today we're going to be looking at the end of this verse where it says his paths or his ways are beyond tracing out or, or beyond finding out um, the amazing ways of God. Have you ever thought about how God works in us and through us and in the world in which we live? And sometimes we fail to understand that God's ways are always right. God's ways are always true. God's purposes will always be carried out. If we could only understand that and remember that when we're in desperate times of need and fretting and worrying about whatever, um, just stop and realize that, you know what, there are many times in the lives of saints in the Bible where it looked like, you know, the wheels were coming off the cart, literally. It didn't look good. And yet God was right there with them and he knew exactly what was going on and he knew exactly why it was going on. And for how long it would continue to go on. And he also understood the purposes that he ordained for that to take place. Sometimes God's ways are mysterious. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth... So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. When you stop and think of what Isaiah is, God is saying there through the prophet Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. That means basically that we have to understand that God is in charge here. We're not. And, and that's why it's so good to understand this God that saved us. So many times Christians fail to understand the God who saved their soul. 
And so, yeah, they're trusting him for salvation. But boy, when the, the finances don't add up at the end of the month, they're, they're freaking out. Or when the relationship's hitting rock bottom, they're, they're, they're just beside themselves. And we have to be reminded that, you know what, we're under God's care, especially if we're his children. And so when he says here in the ESV, it says how inscrutable his ways or paths, you might say. Um, that word here refers to the course of all the judgments and the knowledge of God that we've been studying the last couple times together. And what it means is, you know what, these judgments actually take a certain course in human history. God doesn't just willy-nilly up there pronounce judgments and, and you know, carry out things just for the fun of it. They have a purpose. Watchman Nee wrote a little book, Worshiping the Ways of God. And he, he said this. He said, he defined God's ways as this. His ways are the manner in which he himself, for his own good pleasure, accomplishes what he has willed to do. That's what the ways of God are. It's the manner in which God himself, for his own good pleasure, whatever he desires to do, and he accomplishes what he is willed to do. That includes God's choosing of Isaac, the son of promise. That includes God rejecting Ishmael. Um, his way was to choose Jacob. Most of us probably would not have chosen Jacob. He was deceptive. He was a deceiver. But he rejected Esau who apparently was a much nicer man. When you stop and think about it, God chose Judah, who thought that he was having sex with a prostitute, but actually it was his daughter-in-law. And he was to be the ancestor of the Messiah. I don't think we would have made those choices. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I love Paul, what he writes here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verses uh, 27. Actually, start in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. That's Paul's way of saying... You ain't nobody. That's it. Basically, you're nobody. You may think you're somebody, but you're not. In verse 27, he goes on, he says, but. I love the buts of Scripture. Just love them. Whenever there's a but, it's like, wow, you know, something's good coming. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why did he do this? Verse 29 tells us, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ. Because of God, you were in Christ. 
who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We talked about boasting in the cross on Good Friday. But here, we're told to boast in the Lord. Isn't it interesting that when Paul is speaking here, he goes to the opposite of everything that the world would consider right and just and good. And he says, no, God doesn't operate that way. God does just the opposite. And we all see it in our own lives. Sometimes when we're put in a certain situation and God wants to use us and we're willing to be used and all of a sudden we find ourselves talking to someone about something we have no idea what we're going to say to this question that they're posing us, maybe about the Lord, maybe it's a brother who needs encouragement. We have no idea. But in the quietness of our own own heart, we cry out to God and we ask God, give me wisdom during this time. And lo and behold, that's exactly what God does. Because see, it's not about us. It's not about us. It's about our willingness. It's about us being willing brothers and sisters, to be used of God for His glory. If we can just get that in our mind and in our focus, it would help us as we minister to one another and and, and to those who are even outside the body of Christ. It would help so much. Because all of a sudden, it's not about you going out into this sin-stained, cruel world and sharing Christ and, oh, you're going to be rejected. So what do you do? You don't do it. Well, if it's not about you, you're not going to care. You're going to be willing to offer yourself, as Paul does, to the Lord for whatever may come. That's why even in the New Testament, in the New Testament church, you see these disciples, you know, Christ is off the scene. He's gone, but he's given them the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're like, we're going to preach Christ. And they start doing it. And they start to turn towns upside down because of their preaching and people start coming to christ they're getting saved which is disrupting so much stuff in their in their culture in their lives and so the religious people of the day got upset hey you can't be doing this who do you think you are aren't these guys from galilee you know what are all these people following these see there's a jealousy there why because In the religious realm, it was all about them. That's all they wanted was people to look at them. That's why they would dress up and parade around like there's some, you know, godly thing. They'd pray out on the corner and and yet you have some poor beggar that, Lord, be merciful to me. And Jesus says, that's the prayer that's going to be heard. It's not the one that's prayed by the guy who's all dressed up in his fancy robe, smells nice, says all the right words. See, and that's the thing. When you go out of these doors and you minister, it's not about you. It's not about you being rejected. It's not about you being embarrassed. It's more about Christ. Are you going to give the message of the gospel to those who have yet to hear? And as you do that, are you expecting God to work in ways that otherwise would be impossible? And so these ways, it basically says they're incomprehensible. We cannot understand the ways of a sovereign God. 
And that's exactly what we're dealing with here in Romans 33. He he told us in past studies, God's wisdom and his knowledge, they're perfect. That his decrees, his paths, which flow from the wisdom and the knowledge of God are unfathomable. They're beyond tracing out. You can't possibly mine out what they are. Inscrutable. That's, that's the idea here. And, and that should, first of all, it should offer us humility. Because we begin to understand that this is about God. It's not about us. We should be humble about our inability to comprehend how God works. I mean, why is one baby born perfect and another baby born with health issues? I don't know. But you know what God does? It's not a mistake. It's not an accident. See, when we think of things like that, we have to come humbly before God. And it also causes us to be in awe of God and to praise Him for His greatness. When you stop and you just look at your own life and you look back at where you were before Christ and where you are now that you're in Christ. I'm not saying you're all put together. I mean, we all probably got a long way to go (laughs) in our sanctification process. But I trust you're a little better off than when you first came to Christ or before you came to Christ. Why? Because you understand that, you know what? God paid your debt. He paid your sin. You have that understanding. And we talked before about the judgments of God and they refer to God's decrees. They flow out of his infinite knowledge, his perfect wisdom. These judgments just aren't things that he doles out, you know, willy-nilly. No. Well, the paths here refer to this, the course of these judgments and, and how they actually take place in human history. They're parallel, these two terms. He says of the first, his judgments cannot be searched to the bottom. That's that that Greek word there. The depth of the riches and wisdom, knowledge of God. You can't even get to the bottom. And then he says of the ways of God that he says here that they cannot be followed to the end. You know, usually when you're on a path, you want to get to the end of the path. And you want to know what's at the end of the path. Well, you can't follow the end of God's path because you don't know. They're beyond our comprehension. And what this simply is saying is Paul is saying, you know what? Don't think that you got God figured out. You can't figure God out. We don't even understand anything about God other than apart from his revelation. And God does reveal certain things to us through his word. We know that God has a plan, that he has certain events that he carries out in human history. But Paul, once again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, here's what Paul says about the ways of God. He says, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor mind has conceived what God has prepared. For those who love him. In other words, you you can pray all day long and you're not going to get it. You're not going to say, oh, I understand my purpose exactly. This is exactly what it's going to be. 
Maybe some of you set out in life purposing in your heart to do one thing. And now you look back and you're like, wow, I did something totally different. And it was because God worked, because God moved in my life, changed me. See, that's why when we come to planning out our priorities and planning out what should really matter to us, if God doesn't have the priority in your life, you're going to allow the things of the world, work and all these other things that even family, get in the way of what God wants you to do. And we shouldn't do that. But he also says there in verse 10, he says, but God has revealed it to us by his spirit. So as we're faithful to follow God each and every day, God's ways will be made known to us, not all at once, obviously. He doesn't reveal everything to us. A lot of times he doesn't give out the certain details of events in our lives. And in a way, I'm kind of glad about that. I mean, think of it. If he said, oh, you know what, next Next Friday, you're going to be in a car wreck. Just to let you know, I just want to let you know. Little, little, little side detail. I mean, think, you would live, this next week, you would be like, Ugh. You know, you, 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 would, you, you would just be beside yourself. See, and that's, and that's what's good, is God cares for us each step of the way. And that's why it says his, his word is a light, what? To the path, to our steps, right? As we take each and every step, God is there to show us. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. You know, there's some things that God has not revealed to us and he will not reveal to us, probably ever. That's what makes him God. Well, this word here, inscrutable, or beyond tracing out some translations have, it's kind of a, interesting word in the original language but it's based on a noun which means footprint that's what it means it suggests that although we don't know where god is coming from or where he is going we do see footprints we do see evidences footprints in our own lives that god is there sometimes they puzzle us sometimes they're a comfort to us But I thought it was interesting because James Boyce points out some examples of God's footprints throughout history. And he he gives a list of several individuals. And the first one was Abraham. I mean, if you think of the story of Abraham, that's really God's preparation of these special people through which the Messiah will will, will come. And God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. And God promised Abraham. He said, you would become a father of a great nation. He says in Genesis 12, 2, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Guess what? Poor Abraham never saw it. He did not become a father of a great nation in his lifetime. In fact, for years, he and his wife had no children at all. Think about that. Wait a minute, God. You promised me this big family. What's going on? I mean, we're getting old. And I'm sure when that 
promise was made to Abraham, he let everybody know about it. So he's walking around all those years looking at his wife, looking at his empty house, just him and her. Kind of, it's an embarrassment to them in view of God's promise. Hey, God promises we're going to be the father of men. We don't have any, not one. Abraham's original name was Abraham, and it means father of many. Can you imagine having a name and trying to live up to it all those years? But he went through most of his life without any children at all. And just, this is what I mean, the ways of God are beyond our understanding. When he was 100 years old, that's crazy. I mean, we don't even live to be 100 Sarah was 90 years old. I mean, basically, you you could honestly say, even back then, they were kind of beyond their age of having children. It's not something they were entertaining anymore, you might say. They didn't expect a little junior. Wasn't going to happen. Think about how they must have felt. I mean, here they are. They have this promise from God. Nothing. Well, we know what happened in the story. God intervened. And he caused Isaac, the son of promise, to be born. I mean, but did you ever read that and just go, what's, what's the hold off here, God? What, what are you making people suffer for? Why this long delay? I mean, why couldn't it have taken place sooner and naturally and why did it have to happen this way we don't know the bible doesn't tell us as a matter of fact all we can say is you know what the paths the ways of god are beyond our finding out they're beyond our understanding or you think of somebody like moses here he is he's lifted up as this great emancipator and lawgiver of israel I mean, Moses must have understood that God's hand was upon him and that it was time for deliverance of the people from Egypt. And God had promised that many years before. Finally, this time comes for this promise to be fulfilled. So he starts what he thought would be a successful rebellion by killing an Egyptian, doing it his own way. And what happens? The plan backfires. And he has to flee Egypt. Moses was 40 years old when he left Egypt. Think about this. And for the next 40 years, this talented, highly educated man on the backside of the desert, that's where he lives. Working as a shepherd. I mean, he must have walked around each day kicking the sand going, man, I am a failure. What is going on here? And at the end of that time, when he was 80 years old, he's 80. God sent him to Egypt. By the way, you're going to go back and you're going to tell him, let my people go. Now that you're well done, you've been toasting out there in the desert. I mean, I feel for Moses. You know, I still remember the day when we felt 
And we knew God was calling us down to the desert, down to the Coachella Valley from the East Bay. We lived in Milpitas at the time. And it was in August when we first went down there. We were going down there for a wedding. The pastor's son was getting married. I'm kind of looking forward to it. You know, it'll be a wedding. It'll be nice. And the pastor said, oh, by the way, while you're down here, I want you to do an interview with the, the elders and see if, you know, you want to move down and, and become the youth pastor down there at Calvary Chapel, Indio it was. And I thought, well, okay. And a lot of things in my head just said, I don't know if this is good, bad, whatever. I was working in between churches at a fast frame at the time. I'd been there for several years making picture frames, which I enjoyed, but that wasn't what God called me to do. So we end up down there in August, and I don't know if you've ever been to the Coachella Valley in August, but if you, if you haven't, don't go there. <laughs> Trust me, do not go there. This is miserable. I mean, it's hot. I mean, I'm talking 100 plus, 110, 115, 120, and it's humid. It's not dry heat then. It's dry heat most of the time, but not in August and September, man. It's got this humidity, and you see these thunderheads hanging up over Hammett there in the, in the foothills, but that, it never rains. It's like, wow, this is the rain. Never, com- never comes, never rains there during this time. It's just hot and humid. I mean, you, you, know, you, you get up in the morning, and you're sweating, and you go to the bed at night, and you're sweating. You're turning the AC on. You're still sweating. It's horrible. And to make matters worse, beloved, I moved down there with a dated little Hyundai that I bought over in Fremont, actually. And I remember it was on the showroom floor when I bought it. It was like the featured little car. It had a sunroof and everything. And the the dealer said, would you like, I'll take that one. Would you want to drive it? No, I'll just take it. That's fine. I got to get out of here. I got church tonight. Deliver it to my house. Sign the papers and I'm out of there. And you know, being in the East Bay, you don't really need it much, but it didn't have any AC. Trust me, we needed AC in the desert, beloved. I mean, I remember Sunday mornings getting up and, and we're just, you know, we're inside the house. It's nice and cool. And, you know, I couldn't go start the car to cool it off because it had no AC. So I pulled out of the garage, put the windows down, and hopefully, you know, just get some air moving in the car a little bit. And I remember we'd, we'd run to the car. We'd get in the car. And, and Crystal and Beacon and I would sit in the car. I'd back up. And we would not talk to each other because sweat just starts pouring down. And by the time we got to church, man, we're soaked. It's just miserable. It's just a miserable experience. And I, I feel for Moses being down there. You know, I didn't golf. I didn't like to golf. And, you know, in August, it's horrible because they take all the golf courses right down to the dirt and... And it's just a miserable place to be. I used to pick guys up at the airport and they say, yeah, we got a great deal with that. I say, you got a great deal, all right. Wait till you get out there and try to golf in this stuff, man. It's not going to be fun. But he was there for 40 years. I mean, you think that would be a wasted time. But you know what? It wasn't. God's decrees, God's ways are unsearchable. His paths are inscrutable. Thirdly, he talks about Israel. He says, what about God's dealing with Israel, especially during those wilderness years? Think about this. J.I. Packard says this, God guided Israel by means of a fiery, cloudy pillar that went before them in Exodus 13. Yet the way which he led them involved the nerve-shredding cliffhanger of the Red Sea crossing. 
long days without water and meat in that terrible and great wilderness, the bloody battles with Amalek, Sihon, and Og. And we can understand, if not excuse, Israel's constant grumbling. I mean, wasn't there an easier way to do this, God? Why would you put these people, your chosen people, through all this? What was the point of all these battles, all these delays? If there was a purpose to this history, it's unsearchable. We don't know. Or he mentions David, Israel's great king. God had rejected Saul. You remember the story. David's predecessor and had sent the prophet Samuel to anoint David to be the next king. But what happens? Years go by in which David first served Saul. And then he was chased all over the place by Saul. Because Saul, Saul, David, as a revival, as a, as a, as a, uh, uh, Arrival when he wanted to snuff his life out, basically. So David did not become king until after Saul's death, even though God let him know you're going to be the king when he was 33 years old. And even then, he didn't become king over the whole country. He was king only in Hebron, southern territories. He reigned there seven years. He did not become king over the entire land until he was 40. I mean, why would God do this? Whatever did God have in mind by allowing Saul to reign so long? Particularly when he chose David because of his exceptional character, his leadership ability. Why was he waiting? We don't know. His ways are beyond our understanding. Or you think of somebody else in the New Testament, Paul, the Apostle Paul. I mean, you think about his conversion. I mean, it's definitely a picture of God's direct and effective intervention in somebody's life. I mean, that's what we expect God to be doing all the time. You, know, you look at the Apostle Paul, he was out murdering Christians, and wow, he's transformed on the road to Emmaus. And... Damascus, sorry. First, three years in the wilderness with no apparent accomplishments during that time, as long as you know, Galatians chapter 1, verses 17 to 18. Then there were years in Tarsus, his hometown. You know, it wasn't until his midlife that he's called to active missionary work. And even then, it's mostly in the lands of Asia Minor there. I mean, Paul wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to go where the action is. And eventually he did. But how did he arrive there? He arrived there as a prisoner. He spent most of the time in Rome in chains. And eventually he died there by Nero's order. I mean, here's how Paul described his missionary years. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. 
Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have gone, often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. I mean, here you have troubles, you have hardships, you have distresses, you have beatings, you have imprisonments, you have riots going on, sleepless nights. I mean, why does it have to be this hard, God? Why, why, does it, why can't we just have it, you know, a big tent and everybody gets saved? I mean, couldn't you have worked out some other way to deal with Paul other than causing all these problems upon him for his beatings and going hungry and shipwrecks? Or maybe it wasn't that God cared. Maybe God didn't care about Paul. Well, we know that's not true. We know that God cares, just like he cares for us. Yet why should God be planting his steps in history in this precise way? I don't know. I don't know. The last example is Jesus. I mean, no individual in all of history had the hand of God upon him like Jesus did. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, he was God. God said this, This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. J.I. Packard writes about the life of Christ. He says this, No human life has ever been so completely guided by God, and no human life has ever qualified so comprehensively for the description, a man of sorrows. Divine guidance set Jesus at a distance from his family, from his fellow townsmen. He brought him into conflict with all of the nation's leaders, religious and civil, and led finally to betrayal, arrest, and the cross. By every human standard of reckoning, the cross was a waste. A waste of a young life. A waste of a prophet's influence. A waste of a leader's potential. We know the secret of its meaning and achievement only from God's own statement. See, but we do know. We do know the meaning of the cross. We know that the most miserable of lives was actually the greatest of God's achievements. God accomplished the salvation for a lost race at the cross. That waste that the world would look at, that suffering, was actually the focal point of one of the highest achievements ever in all of history. And the crown awaits beyond the cross. You know, when you look at the life of Christ and you look at the life of Paul, and you look at the life of these other individuals, and then you look at your own life, 
I'm sure it pales in comparison to the suffering you've gone through. But even so, with that being said, we're human. When we're in those times of suffering, it's easy to forget that God has a purpose, that God has a plan, that we're on a path that he has ordained. You could ask all these questions, whether it's about Moses or Israel or David. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says this, These things happen that we might not rely on ourselves, listen to this, but on God, who raises the dead. We have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, he says, Therefore, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what do we do? It says we fix our eyes not on what is seen, beloved, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Therefore, we do not lose heart. I mean, perhaps you're in the middle of your life and you're going, or at the end of your life, I don't know. You're losing heart. Maybe you began your Christian life with confidence. But things didn't work out the way you thought they should. And as far as you can tell, you haven't become some great saint that everybody's looking up to. You're no great model of what it means to be a prayer warrior or anything else, a great evangelist. Maybe even your own personal relationships haven't gone as smoothly and well as you had hoped for. And much of your work, maybe even for the Lord, maybe as you serve in ministry, maybe you feel, you know what? Is this worth it? I teach those little kids, are they even getting anything out of what I'm spending time with them, trying to teach them, trying to pour my life into them? I'm discipling this person, I'm teaching that Bible study, is it worth it? Well, I have one message for you. Do not lose heart. Because God knows exactly what's going on in your life. He knows exactly what he's doing in you and through you. You can't search out these decrees. You can't search out his judgments. You can't perceive the path that he has you on and where he's leading you to. That doesn't mean God doesn't know. He does. He's not confused. Fix your eyes on what is not seen. Fix your eyes on God. Trust in him. I like Paul, what he says, outwardly we're wasting away. You know, it's funny, you know, people come up sometimes and, you know, you ask, well, how are you doing? You know, it's no fun going old, no fun growing old. Well, whoever said it was supposed to be? I mean, think about it. You're in a body that's, that's constantly wearing down. 
There's only so much time you have left. You know, it's not a real happy thing. I mean, it'd be great if you were born and then you just got better and better and stronger. And, but that's not what happens. Your eyes begin to fail. Your hearing goes. You know, your bones begin to creak. You have issues with your blood pressure and all this other stuff and weight gain. Oh, you know, it's just one thing after another. It can become very discouraging. But you know what? That's what's seen. You don't live for what's seen. It doesn't mean we don't take care of ourselves. We should strive to do that. We could all do a better job, I'm sure. But with that being said, you know what? We're all waste. (laughs) We're wasting away. I mean, that's what the Bible clearly says. So don't pretend. I mean, you know, some little pill is going to make you younger. That's not going to happen. You know, you can go to the doctor all day long and they can stretch your face as much as they want. But you know what? In the end, you're going to look old. Because that's what happens. I mean, I don't mean to make light of it, but sometimes we just forget these things. There's a hymn that was written. It says this. Still we will trust. Though earth may seem dark and dreary. And the heart faints beneath his chastening rod. Though rough and steep our pathway, worn and weary, still we will trust in God. Our eyes see dimly till by faith anointed and our blind choosing brings us grief and pain. Through him alone who hath our way appointed We find our peace again. Choose for us, God. Nor let our weak preferring cheat us of good thou hast for us designed. Choose for us, God. Thy wisdom is unerring. And we are fools and blind. Let us press on in patient self-denial. Accept the hardship. Shrink not from the loss. Our portion lies beyond the hour of trial, our crown beyond the cross. See, that's exactly the Christian life. You know, we have a crown laid up for us in heaven. The only problem is it's not on this side of suffering, it's beyond the suffering. It's beyond the sickness. It's beyond the disappointment and the pain. It's beyond the cross. And that's when you stop and you look at who God is and the ways of God. And you begin to realize just how tiny, just how small we are. And you look at verse 34 here. And he talks about the mind of God. Who has known the mind of the Lord? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one. You're not going to understand God. There's a lot of things that we're never, ever, ever going to understand about God. And see, it's important when we see that. Who has known the mind of the Lord? That's what Paul is saying. Why did God... 
choose Israel only to reject Israel and then to save the Gentiles to make his. Why did he do all this? Paul saying, you know what? He has a purpose. He has a plan. You're not going to understand it. We know so little. We're so small, even in this universe. Just go out and turn the lights out and sit out in a dark place at night and look up into the sky if there's no clouds and look at all the stars. It's amazing. I mean, as hard as you look and you just keep seeing more and more and more, the vastness of it. It's beyond our understanding. And yet God created all that. God is in control of all of that. And yet when it comes to our ways, our puny little ways here on earth, we throw our hands up and say, oh no, we don't know what's going to happen. Well, God does. God is perfectly in control. And that's what Job basically concludes. He says, you know what? The Lord's given, the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't understand it. I don't know why I had to go through this. But you know what? God does, and that's good enough for me. So don't question the ways of God. Don't think that you're going to figure it all out and you're going to understand God fully. Because you're not. We can understand what God has given to us through the, the inspired scriptures, and we should learn and desire to know more about him. But when you stop and you look at the God that saved us, there's no other God like him, beloved. And yet he took time to save us, to set his love upon us. That should cause us to be humble in his sight. And then at the end of verse 34 there in closing, he says, Or who has been his counselor? I think a lot of Christians could raise their hand to that one. Yeah, I've, been, I've tried to counsel God. You ever been praying for something and then you start telling God your prayer instead of, Lord, your will be done. All of a sudden you're telling God what to do. You're counseling God. Really? I mean, Paul says that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. The answer there is nobody has been. No, you can't. You can try to be a counselor to God, but boy, you're going to fail. You don't give him counsel. Who do you think you are? Well, what is the practical application here to all this? Well, first of all, there's no true wisdom except in God. If you want to understand true wisdom in your life, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. See, we can know God because God wants us to know him. We can acquire wisdom from God because God wants to give us wisdom. But if you don't go to God, if you try to do this on your own, you're going to fail miserably. Oh, it may look real successful on the outside. I mean, you may have the nice car and the nice house and a good job and the nice little kids. And but you know what? You're a failure. You're a waste if you're not walking in the ways of the Lord. If you're not utilizing the wisdom that God is willing to give us. And then secondly... Learn that even though you begin with God, you'll never fully understand God. You're never going to reach a point where, oh yeah, now I get it. I can't completely understand. You're never going to fully understand his ways. 
Because his ways are not our ways. It says they're beyond our finding out. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the purpose of the Lord that prevails. Now, that doesn't mean you just go home and sit down in the, the lazy boy and do absolutely nothing and say, oh, well, you know, God's got it all worked out. I'm not going to do nothing. No. It says, many are the plans in a man's heart. So we should take some initiative, but we also need to be submissive to God's overruling our initiative at times. And then finally, we need to learn to trust in God and follow hard after him. And that's what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord, what? With all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. Why? Because that's going to get you in trouble every time. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make your paths, what? Straight. See, if you do that, your small little puny knowledge and your faulty wisdom and your misunderstanding will eventually work out for the glory of God because you're relying not on that, but on him who loves and cares for you deeply. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that you're a God that, like no other, I mean, it's truly amazing. And next week as we close this out, that all this, your greatness, our puniness, your awesomeness is all for your glory. And Lord, you've selected to leave us here on this earth for the purpose of that glory. And so, Lord, we pray today that we would have a fuller understanding of who you are and what you desire from us as your people. Lord, that when we leave these four walls, it's not about us. It's about you. It's about living each day for you, setting our purpose and our motives and our fears aside. And going out into this lost and dying world filled with sin, proclaiming the victorious message of forgiveness in Christ, victorious over sin and death. And Lord, I pray that we would understand that it's through the power of your word, through the power of your spirit, that you will draw many to yourself. And Lord, if you choose to use one of us to do such a thing, Lord, praise be to your name. But we should be willing to be used. And Father, I pray for any here who's yet to put their faith or trust in you. Lord, I pray that they wouldn't fall into the trap of dressing up and like the religious leaders of Jesus' day and thinking that prayer is some kind of fancy words that you say on a street corner so everybody looks at you and says how religious you are. No, it, it could be as simple as, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, understanding your need for a Savior and going to the only one who can save the Lord Jesus Christ, who's paid for your sin on the cross. If you cry out to him, Lord, be merciful, a sinner, he will save you. He will make you a new person in Christ. He will lift that burden that you're even now feeling. His ways are not burdensome. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do this. We ask this in Jesus' name.